0: Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, Episode 7, Descent into Chaos. First, before we get started, a quick programming note. I had some technical issues with my first run-through of this podcast, and as a result I had to re-record parts of it. However, I'm also suffering from a pretty nasty cold right now, so the parts I had to re-record feature scratchy-voiced Isaac rather than my usual dulcet tones. I apologize for the variance in quality that results from this. Unfortunately, since all my fancy sound equipment is very immobile, I won't be able to take it with me to New York, so I'm going to have to record everything in advance so the next couple of podcasts are going to feature my scratchy voice. I hope it's not too intolerable, and hopefully it will go away soon. Now then, let's get started. This week we're going to concentrate mostly on the political narrative of the rise and fall of the Ashikaga family, since it's very complex and, to my mind, one of the most interesting stories in Japanese history. Before we get started on that, though, I'd like to take a short detour into the cultural scene of the Muromachi period. Muromachi high culture was essentially Chinese-derived. A revitalized China ruled by the Ming Dynasty produced a massive flourishing of Chinese culture, and a lot of that influence leaked over to Japan. The importation of Chinese culture attained its zenith under the third Ashikaga shogun, Yoshimitsu. You may remember him from last week as the man who brokered the peace deal between the northern and southern courts. Yoshimitsu encouraged cultural contact with China, adoption of Chinese literary, artistic, and architectural forms, and eventually became the first Japanese ruler that we know of since Himiko to submit to the Chinese tributary system and offer up tribute to the Chinese imperial court. The tributary system in China was essentially a sort of diplomatic relationship whereby one government acknowledged the Chinese government as its superior, and in exchange they received things like trade rights or offers of military protection. You still had total freedom to set policies as long as they didn't conflict with Chinese interests. So, for example, you could not invade another tributary state. You also got access, as I mentioned earlier, to Chinese trade, which was worth quite a bit of money. Still. Submitting to foreign domination in an act of nominal vassalage is not always a great PR move regardless of the benefits. Yoshimitsu's successors could not stomach the idea and canned the relationship after his death. Unofficial trade, however, was maintained after the collapse of this tributary system by what are called wako. The term literally means Japanese bandits. These sailors moved between Korean, Chinese, and Japanese coastlines, and as the term bandit implies, they did do some pirating. However, they also engaged in trade, and were actually the primary traders after the end of the tribute relationship with Japan. This trade was entirely illegal without the license of the Ming government, and thus the Ming court made many attempts to suppress them. The Shogun Yoshimitsu was a massive cinephile, he lived out his final years in a villa outside Kyoto, which was the height of ostentatious Chinese style. He had the entire building covered in gold leaf. After his death, it became a temple known as King Kakuji, the temple of the Golden Pavilion. I've put up a picture on the website. It's a beautiful site, and it's worth a trip if you ever find yourself in Kyoto. Unfortunately, the current one is a replica. The original one was burned down by a mentally unbalanced monk in 1950. The high culture of the Muromachi period was much more participatory than its predecessors. Buddhist monks, merchants, rich landowners, samurai, Buddhist clergy, and others begin writing their own poems and seeing no plays, things once preserved only for members of the Kuge families. This is also the period when tea drinking begins to catch on among the samurai, aristocrats, and others. Large tea parties became more and more common, and later on, the custom of tea drinking would spread to the lower ranks of merchants and wealthy landowners, laying the groundwork for the modern Japanese tea ceremony. Religion is another area in which Chinese influence, particularly Buddhism, came to predominate. The native Japanese observances we call Shinto began to take a back seat during this period. Many Shinto shrines took on some Buddhist aspects, and some were even entirely subsumed by Buddhist temples. To this day, you can find Buddhist temples with small Shinto shrines still on their grounds. Most Japanese practiced both Shinto and Buddhism to some extent, and a sort of dual theology evolved whereby the Shinto gods were treated as aspects of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. By the way, a Bodhisattva is, in Buddhist theology, an enlightened person who was motivated to help others attain enlightenment. They have a sort of semi-divine status in Buddhism and are often worshipped, particularly in East Asian Buddhism. This Shinto-Buddhist joint theology is often referred to as Honji Suijaku, literally, the true thing and the reflection. The idea being that Shinto divinities were limited reflections of greater Buddhist entities. This theological construct remained the primary prism through which the relationship between Buddhism and Shinto was viewed until the 1800s. The Muromachi period also saw the rise of a specialized merchant class, which handled trade among the various fiefdoms of local lords, as well as with other Asian states. Merchants began to form into hereditary guilds similar to the European model. Much like European guilds, they concentrated most of their time and energy on blocking competition to maintain local monopolies. During this period, Kyoto became a major urban center, with a population of over 100,000 by the year 1400 AD. Though it was no longer a political center, it remained the economic and cultural heart of Japan. Other semi-independent commercial cities began to develop during this period, particularly along the Pacific coast. Most started off as offshoots of local Shōan estates, but eventually became rich enough that they could take charge of their own affairs, much like, for example, the free cities of the Holy Roman Empire. All in all, the picture we get is of a fairly rich culture on an upwards trajectory but the political decay of the Ashikaga stopped that momentum in its tracks. Turning to issues of politics, after their victory over the southern court, the Ashikaga were unquestioned masters of Japan, but their control was not absolute. The Hojo had ruled in a sort of coalition with Shōen holders, samurai families, and imperially appointed governors. By the time of the Ashikaga, the Shōen holders were vastly diminished in power, and imperial appointees were basically just bakufu servants rubber-stamped by the imperial court. Only daimyo, or local samurai lords, remained as independent power-holders. Most of them had no particular allegiance to the Ashikaga. They were subservient only out of a desire to bet on the winning horse, so to speak. Bakfu resources were vastly outmatched by those of the combined daimyo. As long as the reigning shogun was not incompetent, this was not an issue. Yoshimitsu, for example, was extremely skilled at playing ambitious servants against each other in order to keep them divided. Unfortunately, his successors lacked this talent. There was also a split in the Ashikaga family itself. Two branches of the family developed, one headquartered in Kyoto and the other in Kamakura, this second branch having taken over the old holdings of the Hojo family after the end of the Kamakura bakufu the two branches of the Ashikaga began feuding for control of the government and stopped paying attention to keeping the daimyo divided. By the 1440s, things had begun to spiral out of control. On the fringes, local daimyo, sensing an opportunity, began to fight one another for territory as they realized the bakfu was unable to enforce its will. Several local shoen holders, particularly wealthy temples, began to militarize and seize control of territory for themselves as well. There were also a series of peasant rebellions over issues of debt. The bakufu was eventually forced to cave in to the peasant rebels and issue a series of debt cancellation edicts in the 1440s. This alienated a lot of merchants and moneylenders from the Ashikaga family. In 1441, the reigning Ashikaga shogun Yoshinori was assassinated by one of his retainers. The next two shoguns were both children governed by mediocre regents. By the 1450s, the Ashikaga had lost any real control beyond the vicinity of Kyoto itself. They were basically bankrupt after years of mismanagement, and spent most of their time scrounging for change to keep the Kyoto government afloat. The various daimyo, with no particular love lost for the Ashikaga family, seized the chance to take out rivals, grow their own territory, and develop their own power base, and the Ashikaga proved completely unable to do anything about it. The climax of all of this came in the year 1467. The reigning shogun, Ashikaga Yoshimasa, was childless and planning to retire. In preparation for this, he announced that his brother Yoshimi would be his heir. However, after this announcement, he was able to have a son, named Yoshihisa, and reversed his previous decision, making this son his heir. This enraged Yoshimi and his supporters, who gathered in Kyoto to dispute the decision. Many daimyo who backed Yoshimi out of a desire to get in good with a new potential shogun brought their warriors along in a show of force to intimidate potential opponents. Daimyo backers of Yoshimasa and Yoshihisa responded to this by coming to Kyoto with their own soldiers to back their side of the argument. No one knows who fired the first shot, but fighting broke out between the two sides in a neighborhood of Kyoto and spread throughout the entire city. This conflict is called the Onin War, because the Nengo era name at the time was Onin, and marked the total end of Ashikaga political power. Ashikaga shoguns continued to be appointed for another 100 years, but they held absolutely zero authority, and the countryside around them descended into general civil war. The various daimyo realized that nothing was stopping them from moving against their neighbors and seizing as much territory as they could hold on to. This period is known as the Sengoku, or Warring States Period, and the final shots of that war would not be fired until the year 1615, 148 years after the breakout of the Onin War. The actual details of the fighting of the Sengoku Period are extremely complex and really not worth getting into. It's the kind of history that begs for basic summarization. To put it simply, up until about 1550, the fighting followed a basic template. First, either an alliance of daimyo would form, or a single daimyo would win multiple successive battles and gain control over a large swath of territory. External enemies would form a new alliance against this rising power and attempt to destroy it. If that did not do the trick, jealousy and rivalry would cause the alliance to split, or the retainers of the daimyo to turn on said daimyo and seek independence for themselves. The pattern seemed unbreakable, as it seemed nearly every daimyo could get enough power to become a threat to his fellows, but not enough to become unchallenged master of the land. Many daimyo tried to gain the upper hand by taking over Kyoto, hoping to use the symbolic authority of the bakufu and the emperor to their advantage. Most of them fail. The ones that did not often saw new alliances form against them before they could solidify their hold over the city. The war devastated the country. Kyoto in particular, as the target of so many ambitious warriors, was hit extremely hard. The population shrunk from 100,000 in 1400 to a couple thousand a hundred years later. This means that over a hundred year period, the city's population shrunk down to a few hundredths of 1% of its size in 1400. Most of the city was burned to the ground. The few surviving blocks were fortified by the inhabitants, and in some cases actually began to fight one another in the kind of fighting you'd expect out of an episode of The Walking Dead for control of the few resources remaining in the city. The Onin no Ki, a record of the Onin War written a few decades after the fact, states that, The capital which we believed would flourish for 10,000 years has now become a lair for the wolves. Even the northern field of Tolji has fallen to ash. Lamenting the plight of the fallen, one of the companions of the author, read, Now the city that you know has become an empty field, from which the skylark rises and your tears fall. The poet Solchu arrived in the city in 1526 and was stunned to find that what had once been the heart of a thriving commercial city was now nothing more than farmland tilled by the few remaining inhabitants of the city. He wrote, This route used to be filled with horses and palanquins, everyone bumping shoulders and tilting hats to squeeze by. As I looked out over the city, I saw not one in ten of the houses that had formerly been there, either rich or poor. The sight of tilled fields around farmhouses, with the imperial palace in the midst of summer barley, was too much to bear. The imperial family was hit badly by the events of the war, as they lacked even the nominal forces necessary to defend their holdings around Kyoto. The family were essentially reduced to beggars, and towards the end of the Sengoku period there were stories of the emperor walking the streets of Kyoto, selling calligraphy and poetry to anyone who could afford to pay, in order to keep himself and the rest of the court fed. The destruction of the Sengoku period was by far the low point of Kyoto's history. When I was taking my first Japanese history class as a freshman in college, my professor told the class a story about a time when he stayed in a ryokan, a type of traditional Japanese inn, in Kyoto. The proprietor, an old Japanese lady, welcomed him, told him to make himself at home, and then stopped, looked at him, and apologized. For, she said, the building that he was staying in was not the authentic family inn that the family had run since the Heian period. The original, she said, had been destroyed. My professor was rather curious about this, because to his knowledge, Kyoto had never been attacked in World War II, and basically escaped the fighting of the Meiji Restoration. When he asked for clarification, she explained that, though the families in business dated back to the Heian period, the original building had been burned in the Onin War, and thus she could not offer him the true experience of staying in a thousand-year-old family ryokan. His response was that, being from the American Midwest, where the historic buildings were from the 1890s, he would get over it somehow. Many Buddhist temples also joined the fighting of the Sengoku period, seizing their own independently held territories. By far the most successful sect of militant Buddhists were a subsect of the True Pure Land Buddhist movement called the Ikoiki. Ikoiki were radically egalitarian militant Buddhists who followed the teachings of the True Pure Land monk Renyo. They were able to seize large chunks of territory and incorporate them into an independent, militant Buddhist state. The Sengoku period also marks the final collapse of the Shōen system. The few remaining independent Shōen were seized by local warrior clans and incorporated into their holdings. Local lords become extremely powerful in their domains as a result. Since Shōen holders could no longer complain to the emperor or shōgun, they had no one to go to for protection. Meanwhile, daimyo were essentially autonomous inside of their own territory. However, by the 1550s, things began to change. Some daimyo proved more successful than others, defeating their rivals and establishing real power bases they could pass on to their successors. These daimyo were able to grow their territory so that by the 1550s, some individual daimyo can call on huge numbers of retainers and warriors to fight for them. Second, the arrival of Westerners brought new weaponry in the form of gunpowder, used to devastating effect by some of the more talented generals of the late Sengoku. The first Westerners to arrive in Japan were Portuguese sailors blown off course by a storm, who landed in Kyushu in 1542. According to one story, when the sailors arrived on dock, local Japanese, including many samurai, gathered around to see what these strange foreigners were all about. One of the Portuguese sailors then noticed a bird flying overhead. Being hungry, and a man with a gun, he combined the two by pulling the gun out and shooting the bird. The nearby samurai then immediately started a bidding war to buy his gun off of him. Within ten years, various samurai clans were producing their own weapons that roughly matched the quality of their European counterparts, and many more were trading with the Portuguese, and later the Spanish, for imported Western weaponry. All of what I've just said might make you think this period was pretty awful for everyone involved, and certainly it was if you were, for example, a foot soldier, or a farmer whose territory got raided by another army, or anyone else whose life was ruined by the constant fighting. However, by the latter half of the period, the high culture of the Muromachi began to revive itself somewhat. The social upheaval, provided by constant warfare, also allowed for a near-unheard-of level of social mobility that would not be matched until the 19th century. Local lords, now much more powerful and directly competing with one another for prestige, attempted to enhance their positions by patronizing great works of art and architecture, and enhanced their image as cultured gentlemen by taking up practices like, for example, calligraphy or the tea ceremony. Much like the local lords of the late Holy Roman Empire, even when they were not actively trying to kill each other, the various daimyo competed indirectly for prestige, and the result was a massive cultural boom. Of course, I'm sure this was cold comfort to the poor bastard called up for his third consecutive season of campaigning and sent to storm some castle in the middle of nowhere that he'd never heard of. Next week, we will turn to the reunification of Japan, and the stories of three men who ended the chaos and drag Japan back from its longest-running war to the longest period of unbroken peace in its history. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.